0: Thank you, Marilyn. This morning we'll be looking at John three. We'll just be looking at the last three verses that Marilyn just read, nineteen to twenty-one. But I asked her this morning to read a few verses ahead to give us some context to remind us, because we haven't been in John three for the last six or seven weeks since the beginning of October. So we'll be looking at the last three verses, John thirteen, three chapters. John chapter three verses 19 to 21. Let's pray. Father God, you are light. And you have sent your Son as light into this world that we may know you, that our works may be exposed, seen, that your love might be seen. Help us now, Lord, by your divine aid, to see in your word the light of your gospel of grace in Christ. Thank you for the ways that you've been working this morning, through your word, by your spirit, through our encouraging one another through song, through the reading of your word, through our prayers, Lord, thank you for the ways you've been working in our lives this week. We come now humbly to your word. To be enlightened. To grow in understanding and in love. Work in us to your glory this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned, we're on our fifth and final sermon, looking at conversion. We've been walking through John 3. Uh, to look at this one of few topics that could be more important to understand as Christians. Our faith is not a culture that people are born into. It's not a philosophy that people can be convinced of. Neither is it a club that people can voluntarily join. Christianity, fundamentally, is a supernatural faith. To become a Christian as we've been studying through this series, is to experience something supernatural, something divine, something from above. It's, to become a Christian is to be changed fundamentally by a force outside ourselves. And if the very essence of our religion is based on this kind of change, it's obviously important for us to understand that change that we call conversion. To do so, We've been studying John 3, possibly Jesus' clearest teaching on the subject of conversion. In John 3, as a brief review, Nicodemus, a religious leader, has come to Jesus at night. If anyone could have been born into the kingdom, convinced intellectually, or had the credentials to become a Christian, surely it was this man. But Jesus immediately tells him, that anyone who wants to see the kingdom of God, anyone who wants to enter into eternal life, must be born again. Nicodemus didn't realize how great his need was. He didn't need moral reform. He didn't need to add to his already great learning. He didn't need to keep any new laws to enter the kingdom of God. He needed to be born again or from above. He had this need because every one of us has this need. No one is qualified, no one is worthy to have fellowship with God because everyone is born in sin, dead in trespasses, children of wrath, Ephesians 2 tells us. Jesus then shows Nicodemus that he should have known this already. He should have been familiar with this teaching. It's promised and it's prefigured in the Old Testament. He references Ezekiel 36 when he tells Nicodemus he must be born of water and spirit. God promised centuries earlier through the prophet Ezekiel that he would sprinkle people clean and put his spirit within them. Jesus also expected Nicodemus to know that God's always been a God who sovereignly saves people and undeserving people by his own good pleasure. The spirit doesn't blow on those who deserve the spirit. The Spirit doesn't blow on those who have done enough good works. The Spirit, Jesus says, just like the wind, blows where it wills. Why did God choose Abraham? Why Jacob? Why the nation of Israel? He tells them in Deuteronomy that it's not because they were great, mighty, or worthy. God's always chosen unworthy people to love and raise up based on his own sovereign good pleasure. What are the grounds for this choosing and this forgiving and saving that Nicodemus is slowly learning that he needs? Jesus points to himself. He was sent in love by the Father to be lifted up on a cross like the serpent in the wilderness in the book of Numbers. The Son of God was sent into the world because God loves the world. He was sent on a saving mission to live a perfect life, die a substitutionary death, and rise again from the tomb, earning forgiveness and justification for each and every guilty, undeserving sinner who would put their faith in him. So we've concluded through our series so far that regeneration, regeneration is a work of God in which he raises sinners dead in their trespasses to life in Christ giving them new hearts regeneration is a work of god in which he raises sinners dead in their trespasses to life in Christ giving them new hearts regeneration a work of god conversion is a work of man in response to god's regenerating grace in which a person repents and believes the gospel conversion's a work of man in response to god's regeneration in which one repents and believes in the gospel. But now, in our passage this morning, we come to a dark reality that John's bringing out. There are some who reject that saving work, who are not regenerated, who never convert, who never believe in Christ, and are not saved, but are under judgment and condemnation. There are some to whom God has revealed himself, both in nature and in scripture, who hear the good news of the gospel and reject it. They hear that God has rendered a verdict on their lives and finds them guilty. They hear that instead of abandoning them in their sin, instead of turning from this whole human race and starting afresh on some other planet, God sends his beloved son, his only son, his son who he loves perfectly, who has dwelt with him forever, his son who comes and lives on the earth as a man, who lives a perfect life of love and obedience, the only man ever to do so, to save them from their sin. They hear that this son is rejected by his very own people, his kinsmen. He's persecuted, he's even laughed at while he's alive arrested, beaten, spat upon, mocked, nailed to a cross, and hung from his stretched out hands to die. More than that, he suffered the full, undiluted wrath of God while hanging there, the punishment that would take an eternity for a mere man to satisfy, and drank it down to the last drop. All this for enemies of God and what's the response of many to this act of love rejection hatred even john says there couldn't be a more absurd reaction to the love of god than hatred and rejection but that's what john is telling us is the response of some it's the reality we see around us in our world today it's absurd it's sad But it's the state of many all around us. And the result of this absurd rejection is judgment. Rejecting Christ and bringing judgment upon yourself is absurd. John, in these three verses this morning, will help us make sense of that absurdity by showing us the reality of judgment, the reason for judgment and the rescue from judgment. John's going to show us the reality of judgment, the reason for judgment, and the rescue from judgment. So first, let's look at the reality of judgment. The first phrase in verse 19, look down, is, and this is the judgment. John's already been using the verb form of this word, kind of unhelpfully translated condemned, and now translated judgment in the ESV. Uh, But it's the verb form, is condemned, he's been using. And now he uses a noun. And this is what he's been talking about. This is the judgment or the condemnation. He's been saying that those who don't believe in Christ are already condemned. Well, what does that mean? He's about to explain. That's why there's a colon in your translation. That is helpful. But before we get to this explanation, it's important to note just the fact that there's such a thing as judgment, as condemnation. This is a cosmic, divine, true, and just, guilty verdict from God the judge. This isn't an opinion. It's a true and just, guilty verdict from God the judge. This is a present judgment that John's talking about, which will give way to a full future judgment in eternity. It's important for us to stop now and remember that there is a judge who's presently judging all things and who will finally one day judge each and every one of us. Much of our society's forgotten this, and the devil's great trick is to make us forget this too. The result of forgetting about God's just and final judgment on a societal level is moral relativism there's no lawgiver and no judge, if no one has to answer for anything when they die, then everyone can just do what's best for them. No one really has the right to tell anyone what to do. Some people hear that and they think, that's the way things should be. It's a libertarian paradise. You mind your own business, I'll mind mine. Everyone just do what's right in your own eyes. Everyone just do what's right in your own eyes. But that's the phrase that concludes the evil and the chaos in the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The result of moral relativism is never a perfect freedom that leads to human flourishing. It's moral chaos that hurts people and leaves people enslaved in sin. There's a reason that people swear on the Bible before taking public office or uh, testifying in a court. People once did that as a reminder that you'll have to answer one day to someone above you for all that you're about to say and do. And remembering that keeps evil in check. On a personal level, we're all tempted to forget that all we say and do will one day be laid out before us and before God and judged and examined. Jesus says we'll be judged for every careless word we speak. Everyone. This is a necessary reminder even for Christians, for whom there is no condemnation in Christ. Even Christians need to hear this. The reminder that our Christian lives will be weighed in God's just balances no longer terrifies us, but it motivates us to good works so that one day we might hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But what is this present judgment, not that Christians, but that unbelievers find themselves under, that John's talking about in verse 19? They find themselves under a self-inflicted judgment, John says, of rejecting the light. A self-inflicted judgment of rejecting the light. The light, as we heard Nathan explain from Isaiah, is Christ. John's already made that clear in chapter 1 of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus himself says that he is the light of the world. Later on in John's gospel, in chapter 8, Jesus is the light who is shown in the world, making God's saving love for humanity known. And by rejecting that light, man can be nothing else but under judgment. Jesus is the light, the Word of God, the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of His nature. By Him, we know God. And by him, we know God's posture towards humanity is one of love. Jesus came, meek and lowly, a humble man, not holding a sword, but an olive branch. He's the Prince of Peace who came teaching, healing, calling people to repentance, offering forgiveness and life. Had Jesus come like a harsh warlord, riding into Jerusalem on a horse, with scales in his hand, ready to judge each and every individual for their sin. One might be excused for running and hiding in terror, for rejecting him as a harsh Lord. But Jesus came as an ambassador of peace, riding on a donkey, willing to die for his people. The rejection and hatred of this kind of Lord is inexcusable. It renders a judgment. The rejection of the lowly Christ, offering forgiveness and fellowship with God, offering eternal life, needs nothing more than to be exposed. And when it is, it's easy to see. It's sad absurdity. There may be some of you here this morning who don't believe in Christ, who have never turned from your sin and trusted in Him. If that describes you, John's warning you this morning that you aren't doing okay. You aren't friends with God. You aren't at peace. There's no such thing as neutrality when it comes to Christ. You're putting yourself under judgment for rejecting his kindness and love. Come to Christ today. Come into the light. Humble yourselves this day before a kind and loving, but just and all knowing God. Don't go on in an absurd rejection of the light. Come talk to me or any other member of this church to hear about how God's made sense of chaos and shined light into dark lives. Why is it? Why is it that any reject this light? Why would any not only run from but hate the God who offers himself to us and for us in such a loving way. John says the reason for judgment is found in the heart. Notice the language that John uses both in verse 19 and 20. Look at verse 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things Hates the light and does not come to the light. He doesn't say that the light came into the world and people couldn't understand it or could not see the light. He says that the light came into the world and people loved darkness instead. He's using the language of love and hate. Rather than coming to the light, they hate the light. John's saying that the heart of man's problem is the heart. The heart of man's problem is the heart, the inner person, where your affections, your emotions, your desires, and your will reside. The reason people put themselves under judgment is that they love darkness. They hate light and love darkness. This metaphor for light and darkness is common through the Bible. It goes all the way back to the very first creative act, to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1. In a very real, non-metaphorical act, God says, let there be light. 1 John even says that God is light. Light and God, therefore, connected concepts throughout Scripture. Light allows us to see. There's an intellectual component, therefore, to this metaphor of light and darkness. By the light, we can see things clearly. By the light, we can read anything. The book, this, the Bible, any other book, light allows us to see. Bring a flashlight into a cave and hidden secrets can be made known. Connecting light from God and the intellect, as we already read this morning in Second Corinthians, Paul says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And two verses later, talking about conversion he continues the metaphor, saying, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So light on one level is connected to knowledge, to revelation, to new and a renewed understanding. But there's also a moral aspect to this metaphor. So, Light is on one level talking about the understanding. On another It's talking about the moral sphere, ethics. Light exposes things, and it exposes the true nature of things. A strong enough light can help you determine a real diamond from a fake. So light is associated with purity and uprightness. People do things they're ashamed of at night, when it's dark, when it's hard to see. Robbers sneak around at night. Drunkards get drunk at night. When I was in college, our coach, at the start of every year, would gather us together and tell us, nothing good happens after midnight. Nothing good happens after midnight. College kids don't tend to get in trouble at 10 in the morning when it's light outside. It's at 2 in the morning when darkness reaches its peak, when trouble also tends to reach its peak. So we see in these metaphors, and even in our own lives, that understanding Actions and the heart are closely related. What we do is what we love, whether good or bad. And we love what we do, and we act based on our knowledge. And our knowledge, in turn, affects our love. Our hearts and minds and actions are inseparable. I know that I should eat healthy foods, so that affects, affects my action. It affects what I choose to buy and what I choose to reach for in the fridge, And those actions reinforce themselves over time. I I grow in love, in a desire to keep being healthy. I feel good. But an overwhelming love for ice cream can override any knowledge I have of what milk and sugar will do to my body. And so I might find myself reaching for the freezer instead of the bowl of fruit on the counter. We aren't machines. We're living people. Beings who are moved by our hearts just as much as our minds. And so, John says, it's a love for darkness that keeps people from Christ, not a lack of information. Darkness allows people to continue doing the wicked things that they love without feelings of guilt or shame. It's the light of the gospel that exposes wicked works for what they are. Sexual immorality, racism, greed, pride, self-righteousness. Each of these can be treated as virtues to minds that are darkened. Everyone can find a pocket of society, a pocket of darkness, that will actually celebrate those things. But God's Word, the preaching of the law and the gospel, tells us that those things are wicked. It tells people that the things that you believe The things you do and the things you love are actually bad. They're bad for you, they break God's law, and they bring you under condemnation. It's the light of the gospel that exposes wicked works for what they are. And when that light shines, people have a choice. The light of the gospel exposes our lives, shows us what we are, who we are, and when that happens, we have a choice. We can agree with the gospel that we need to be saved from these things. We can use the light from God's word to examine ourselves like we would examine ourselves in a mirror when we turn the bathroom light on, see ourselves clearly, or when that light flip is switched, we can shut our eyes and retreat deeper into darkness where we think we can't be seen. the reason John's saying that people choose this frightful second choice to retreat into darkness isn't because we don't have enough information, but because we have sinful hearts. Anyone who makes this choice is showing not that they don't have enough information, but they have disordered loves. The human condition, before and apart from the grace of God, is to have a hard and sinful heart. It's a consistent testimony of Scripture. Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The psalmist in Psalm 119 describes the unregenerate heart as unfeeling like fat. Talking about man's problem as a problem of love, a problem of the heart, is John's way of talking about the very same problem Paul is talking about in Romans 1. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul's talking about general revelation, John's talking about the light of the gospel and Christ. But hard hearts do the same thing with either kind of revelation. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They reject with their minds what their hearts hate. We have a responsibility to shine the light of Christ in our city and in our families. But our job as a church isn't to try and figure out a clever way of saying what people here in this Millwood neighborhood might want to hear from a local church. Our job isn't to try and manipulate our children into making a decision. If all it took to make an unbelieving person a Christian was to convince them to change their mind, then we should be hiring the best ad agencies in the world. If all it took was a change of mind, we should be outsourcing and hiring ad agencies. Ad agencies convince people with catchy images and clever sayings to change their mind from buying one thing to buying another. If you give me a good argument, I'll switch from buying HEB brand paper towels to bounty. Show me that it's more cost effective. Show me it'll save me time and effort. And I'll make the change. But Christianity does not work like that. A simple change of mind won't do. Man needs a change of heart, a change of nature, a fundamental overhaul of the inner person. How are we rescued from our hard, sinful hearts that we're all born with? The hard hearts that cause us to place ourselves under judgment? Well, rescue from judgment comes from God's grace, his regenerating grace alone. Rescue from judgment comes from God's grace alone. God's grace saves us from judgment by forgiving us of sin justifying us by faith in Christ. We are forgiven of sin. We're justified before Him through faith in Christ. But who is it that comes to Christ to receive that forgiveness? Who comes to Christ to receive forgiveness? Whose loves begin to change so that she starts hating the darkness and coming towards the light? It isn't the smartest among us Many of the smartest people in the world reject the gospel. It's not, at the bottom, as we've already said, an intellectual issue. Satan knows more about God and the gospel than most. But he hates God and his gospel. It's not the smartest. And it isn't good people. It's not good people who come to Christ. Look at verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. If all we had in the whole Bible were these three verses, we might be excused for mistakenly believing that good people come to Christ. It's the bad people who don't. But John can't be saying that. He can't be saying good people are the ones who come while bad people don't. Nicodemus was a good person by the world's standards. He was upright, moral, respected by all. But Jesus has already demolished the idea that people deserve God's grace. John is not saying that it's good people who come to Christ. Neither is it the humblest among us who come to Christ. Even this would give people a reason to boast. Cal, why did you believe? And Bobby didn't. I must have been a little bit more humble than he was, a little bit better naturally. It's not the smartest. It's not the best. It's not the most humble. It's those who God, by his grace, changes, regenerates, and causes to be born again. It's those who God reaches into their chest and removes their hard heart and replaces it with a soft, fleshy heart. Those of us who believe who do what is true do so only by God's grace. And so God removes any reason to boast, any bit of pride from any who have experienced this grace. The difference between those in verse 20 and those in verse 21 is owed solely to the undeserved kindness of God. God changes hearts and he does so through the word specifically the preached Word, coupled with the Spirit working supernaturally in those who hear the Word. How does God change the heart? He does so through His Word. It's this combination of gospel proclamation and spiritual renovation that raises sinners to life and draws them into saving fellowship with God. Through these divinely appointed means, sinners who once hated the light now find it strangely compelling. God's grace is no longer an offense to one's own goodness, but a beautiful, necessary truth. Sinners who once recoiled to hear of God's holiness and His holy standards now agree with them and love holiness. The Savior who once sounded like a myth or fairy tale now becomes very, very real. The God who once seemed far off now seems fearfully but joyfully near. The God we once ran from now sweetly draws us to himself. And all who are drawn to him and come to him will find him to be a perfect Savior. No one drawn to God in this saving way will in the end be left in their sin under condemnation and judgment. No one will find him to be a disappointment. No one will find that the object of their new love didn't quite live up to the hype. Or as Jesus says later in John, in John 6, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Praise God. We will be raised with him on the last day. But we don't need to wait till the last day to see and enjoy the fruits of conversion. The results of this new birth... This divine heart level change from God is a complete renovation of our whole person. The result of the new birth is a conversion that involves the mind, the heart, and the actions. The fruit of conversion is renewed reason, renewed love, and reordered lives. Renewed reason, renewed love, and reordered lives. Do you see these three in your life? Are you pursuing renewed minds, godly loves, and good works? When God changes people and brings them to saving faith, their minds are renewed. The intellectual absurdity, rejecting a loving God who's been sent into the world to die for you, that intellectual absurdity is corrected. What is objectively lovely, Christ, becomes seen to the converted person as lovely. Reason's been restored. The avenue through which our reason is restored, through which our minds are renewed, is the study of the scriptures. So study God's word. Though each of these fruits, a renewed mind, renewed love, and renewed actions, though each of those is a work of God, it's also a commandment to you. Paul's commandment in Ephesians 4 17 is to pursue renewed minds. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of heart. So God's grace comes to us through our minds. Renewed loves, sacrificial action will only occur in those minds and hearts who know what they're loving and who they're serving. But notice Paul immediately connects both the heart and practice to this knowledge. Continuing on in that passage in Ephesians 4, they have become callous, talking about the unbelieving mind. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Living with renewed minds is connected to soft hearts that practice holiness. So study God's Word, and I would encourage you to do so with a special eye towards His ethical commands. God's work of grace in you should be balanced. So if your learning is growing faster than your gratitude towards God, if your learning is growing faster than your humility before Him, your love for your spouse or your fellow church members, you aren't really learning much at all. God's greatly and I would dare even say chiefly concerned with your love, with your heart. Now, we can't love what we don't know, but we must prioritize loving over cold knowing. The aim of Paul and Timothy's ministry, Paul writes, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The great commandment, the thing that God says we need to be most concerned with doing is to love the Lord your God, to love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The Christian life is a life of love. What do you love? What do your thoughts and actions reveal that you love? One key application for our church is this. If God is greatly concerned about our hearts, if the great goal of his grace in our lives is to glorify himself by giving us a holy love for himself, we also ought to be greatly concerned with our hearts. And that means also, for us as a church, being concerned with one another's hearts. So that means at least a portion of our time together, whether it's our Sunday morning gatherings, our time in life groups, or if it's just in friendships and discipling relationships one-on-one, we must give a portion of that time to asking heart-penetrating questions. If this feels intimidating, because I'm telling us that we have a responsibility to be asking these kind of questions to one another. If that feels intimidating, if you feel like you wouldn't know how to begin, David Powlison, former CCEF counselor, has some help for us. You can find a list of what he calls x-ray questions online. All you have to do is Google David Pallison x-ray questions. Here are a few of them. So helpful. Number one, what do you love? Is there something you love more than God or neighbor? An easy question we can all remember. Two, what do you want? What do you desire? What do you crave, long for, wish, Whose desires do you obey? Question 14. Who are your role models? Who are the people you respect? Who do you want to be like? Who is your idol? And question 15. What do you desperately hope will last in your life? What do you feel must always be there? What can't you live without? I know a pastor who used to go to his kids' soccer games And ask these questions to other parents in the stands. People think it's pretty bizarre at first. You should probably be bringing up how hot it was this summer, or maybe the Cowboys. Not what I want most in life, or what I can't live without. But that's how real knowing of other people begins. I don't care what you think about the Cowboys. That's a very tiny portion of your life. What you love, that's knowing a person shouldn't those kind of questions and conversations be normal in our church, among a community who are all actively seeking hearts that love the Lord? Finally, the end result of a changed mind and a renewed heart is a reordered life. That's why John doesn't talk about loving the light. Look again at verse 21. He's contrasting these two images. Everyone who does wicked hates the light. You would expect him to say, whoever does what is true loves, to the, loves the light. But he starts talking about actions instead. Whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John doesn't talk about loving the light, but practicing the truth and doing good works that have been carried out in God. It's good works that others can see, and it's good works that make God's grace and his glory visible. Ephesians 2.10 famously tells us that we were created and recreated precisely for this, for good works. The whole book of Titus is an exhortation to do good works that flow from God's saving grace. 1 John was written in part to show that anyone professing Christ who doesn't show his love for Christ's body, the church, by doing good works, is a liar. It's our works, in the end, that reveal God's gracious work in our hearts and minds. Jesus, at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers or doers of lawlessness. It's works that reveal to Jesus on the last day what kind of faith you had, whether it was a saving, justifying faith or not. the point is this, if you're a Christian, you'll have something, anything to show for it. Paige and I were in LA a couple weeks ago. We were also sick then, different sickness. but We met this awesome guy named Jose. Jose was all tatted up, and after talking to him for a few minutes, he quickly started telling me all about God's grace in his life. He was raised in a gang. His mother was a gang leader, so he never knew anything else. He was raised in a gang. He was doing and selling drugs. He was in and out of prison for the first 25 or so years of his life. Several years ago, someone shared the gospel with him in prison, and he was saved. He came to the light. His heart was changed. His loves were changed. His understanding was changed. They were changed to the point where he valued Christ and holiness more than he valued his own life. How do I know that? How can I tell you that with confidence? Not just his words, but what he did. Jose told a gang leader in prison that he wasn't going to work for him anymore. Jose told me he wasn't sure if he was going to leave that conversation alive but he valued his sanctification over his life. Thankfully, that leader's response was, unsurprisingly, okay, he let him live. And so Jose is now an active church member and he's studying at a local Bible college. But Jose's love caused him to take action that could have cost him his life. And that action allowed me to glorify God and his work in Jose's life. What fruit is there in your life? What works can you point to? Not to prove your righteousness, but to display God's gracious work in you. Most of us won't have drastic gang-related stories to tell, but each and every Christian will bear fruit some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. Every Christian can point to God's grace in their lives and say, here's where God's given me victory over this sin. Here's where God's repaired this relationship. Here's how God has equipped me for service to others. Being a member here at Millwood means that there's evidence of God's saving grace in your life. You've believed the gospel and you've borne fruit of repentance. And that means that God's equipped each one of us here for the work of ministry, for service to one another, for good works that grow one another into maturity. For some, that looks like preaching. For others, it's teaching building blocks in the morning. But for others, it's helping someone move, making a meal, inviting someone over for tea. For all of us, It's encouraging someone, discipling and being discipled and praying for one another. The result is a public, evident testimony to God's grace in our life together as a church. God's regenerating and converting grace is made most clear in our life together as a church. May the light of Christ be clearly seen in this dark world in our life together here at Millwood Baptist church. Let's pray. Father God, you are light. You are the God only wise, immortal, invisible. You have done a great work in Christ. We pray that you would continue to do a great work in our hearts, uniting us to Him by faith, changing our minds, giving us new hearts that love You, that enjoy communion with You for eternity, and actions that show it. We pray that we would be a church that glorifies You, not just in what we say, not just in our statement of faith, but in our life together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.